You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. And if you would open up with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Today's message comes from a series that we did in which we studied through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. So we're going to get into that tonight, uh, looking at chapter 5, verses 17 through 30. So please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we pray that tonight as we give our attention to it, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would um, change the way that we think, Lord, change the way that we feel. Lord, as, as you uh, gear our affections towards yours, Lord, that you bring us into harmony and alignment with your heart. So we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and in our minds today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Sermon on the Mount was a teaching that Jesus gave early on in his ministry to a group of what you might call prospective disciples. These were people who had heard about Jesus, um, and they had traveled, some of them more than 100 miles by foot, to find out for themselves if the things that they had heard about Jesus were actually true. And so Jesus led this large crowd of people who had come because they were interested in him. He led them up on a hillside there near the Sea of Galilee. And he led them up. Why on this hillside? Because he stood at the top of the hill, and then they would be down on the hill, and the, the projection would help them to hear uh, the, in a large crowd the things that he had to say. And he spoke to them there in this place about who he was, what he was about, and what it would mean for them, what it would look like for them to be disciples of him. And what Jesus presented to these people in the Sermon on the Mount could be called kind of the foundational principles and understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And as we study this section, what we find is that to be a Christian is to live in a way that is radically countercultural. Countercultural. But Jesus promises that this countercultural way of following him is the way that will lead to true and ultimate happiness and fulfillment, both in this life and in the life to come. The title of today's message is Getting to the Heart of the Matter. In verses 17 and 18, here's what we read. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The law and the prophets was the common way of speaking about the Old Testament in Jesus' time. They call it the Law and the Prophets because, of course, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament because they didn't have a, a New Testament yet at that point. So they called it the Law and the Prophets, which are kind of the two main features or sections of the Old Testament. Now, amongst some people, there can be this assumption that when Jesus came along, he taught something that was different than what the Old Testament taught. And you, you might even say yourself, well, well, isn't that true? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? I mean, doesn't the Old Testament teach a different way of coming to God and being saved than the New Testament does? I mean, did, didn't Jesus come along and override 
the Old Testament and replace it with something new, a new way of approaching God by grace rather than the old way of approaching God by religious rituals and rules. And you might, you might say, I mean, Jesus and the New Testament, they seem so focused on love and grace, whereas the Old Testament seems so full of rules and judgment. I mean, isn't what Jesus taught somehow different than what the Old Testament teaches? Well, what Jesus is telling us here is no. No, and he says, no, I don't want anyone to think that I am opposed to the Old Testament. I did not come to get rid of the Old Testament and replace it with something new. Rather, I have come to fulfill the Old Testament. And he says, truly I say to you, not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. What Jesus is telling us here is that the only problem with the Old Testament is that people have misunderstood it and misinterpreted it. People have misunderstood it and misinterpreted it. But there's no problem with the Old Testament itself. And now Jesus is going to, in the, in the following verses, correct some of these wrong assumptions that people have about the Old Testament. And he's going to show us how we should properly think about the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. And he's going to get to the heart of the matter, the heart of the Old Testament scriptures. So first, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus talks to us about his relationship with the Old Testament. And then in verses 19 and 20, Jesus talks to his disciples about their relationship with the Old Testament. And Jesus uses this, this way of speaking here that is very unique. You're going to notice in this section, he says this phrase, truly, I say to you. Now, there, there's no evidence from other teachers in Jesus' day or before who used this kind of phrase. The prophets, if you remember the Old Testament, they often use this phrase, thus saith, saith the Lord, or this is what the Lord says. But Jesus says, I say to you. Do you notice a difference there in authority? It's something that the people in Jesus' time absolutely would have noticed because it says, actually, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, notice what it says in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. It says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as their scribes. The scribes, by the way, were the theologians of that day and of that culture. They were experts in the scriptures. And the scribes, when they taught, they would say things like, God's word says this, or Moses says this, or Rabbi so-and-so says this. In other words, they didn't speak on their own authority. They, they referred to the authority of someone else. But here's Jesus, and he speaks in a way that's different. He speaks on his own authority. Don't, don't you think it's fascinating that Jesus never said, thus saith the Lord? Did you notice that? Jesus never says, thus saith the Lord. Some people want to, to regard Jesus as merely one prophet among many prophets who have lived, one holy person among many holy people who have lived. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't speak in the way that any other prophet ever did. Other prophets said, this is what God says. Jesus said, this is what I say. It's a remarkable little signature, a little hint of Jesus' authority and Jesus' deity. Jesus was speaking on his own authority. But notice this. He wasn't speaking in contradiction to the word of God or the Old Testament. Rather, he is full of reverence for the word of God and the Old Testament. You know, Jesus didn't come and just rip up the Old Testament and say, forget that stuff, right? I'm here to give you something better, something new, something different. No, he said, 
I'm here to fulfill the law. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in every way possible. Think about it. The Old Testament has doctrinal teachings, for example. It's full of commandments. Jesus fulfilled all of the commandments through perfect obedience. It's been said that Jesus only added one thing to the law and the prophets that had never been there before, and that was perfect obedience. That's the only thing he added to it. Never before had anyone lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God, but Jesus did. Jesus was the first and only person to ever fulfill all of the moral and legal demands of the law of God. Also, the Old Testament is full of predictive prophecies. That's another feature of the Old Testament about the Messiah, about the Savior, the Redeemer, the King who God promised to send into the world. The Old Testament is full of symbols and pictures, some of which don't make a lot of sense on their own. You, you read them and you say, what is this? But Jesus, as the Messiah, as the substance to which those pictures and symbols and prophecies pointed, he comes and he fulfills all of those things. He is the reality behind the shadow. He's the fulfillment of the symbols. He is the very thing to which all of the law and the prophets talked about and pointed to. And what that means for you and me is this. In order to properly read the Old Testament, you need to understand something. And that's this, that all of the Bible from the first page to the last page, is all about Jesus. It's ultimately all about him. It's the story of Jesus. Jesus is the heart of the Old Testament. He is the hope of the Old Testament, the hope of a Redeemer, the Savior, the perfect sacrifice, because the law of God proves to us beyond any shadow of a doubt that we have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. And therefore, we're, we're subject to God's judgment. And therefore, we desperately need a savior. We desperately need atonement. And all of the animal sacrifices in the world could never be enough. What we need is a savior, the true savior. And Jesus now stands before this crowd, and he tells them, all of the law and the prophets, it will all be fulfilled in me and by me, down to the very smallest detail. Every iota, every dot will be perfectly fulfilled in me. Even the penalty of the law, I have come to fulfill even that itself. You know, an iota and a dot, these, uh, as some translations like this one call them, uh, some call them a jot and a tittle. These were kind of the smallest marks of punctuation. This would be, in our modern English vernacular, it'd be essentially saying, every T will be crossed, every I will be dotted, even the lowercase j's, we're going to dot those too, right? Down to the smallest detail, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. And guys, this is why I I love to read and study the Old Testament. This is why I love to teach the Old Testament here at Whitefields, because it is amazing to see how every part of it was orchestrated and designed by God for hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus came into the world, and yet it all points to him and was fulfilled by him. And so the Old Testament and the New Testament, don't ever think that they are at odds with each other. Rather, they are two parts of the same story. They are two parts of one whole. I like how J.C. Ryle put it. He put it this way. The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. 
That's Jesus' relationship with the Old Testament. But now Jesus is going to talk to the disciples about their relationship with the Old Testament. Look at what it says in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, to be a Christian, to be a disciple of me, it doesn't mean to be nonchalant about sin. No, the greatest in my kingdom, he says, is the person who pursues holiness and encourages others to do the same. And he says this, I don't want you to use the grace of God as an excuse to sin against the commandments of God. No, he says the person who does that will be considered least in the kingdom of God. Obedience to God's commands is part of living a life that is submitted to Jesus as Lord. But then Jesus said something really incredible in verse 20, something that would have been absolutely shocking to everyone sitting there and listening. Look at what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I wish I could have been there it's to see the faces, to see the reactions on people's faces when Jesus said this. Because here's why. Do you know how devoted the scribes and the Pharisees were to keeping the law of God? The Pharisees in particular. The Pharisees dedicated their entire lives to observing the law of God down to the very smallest details. They had gone through the Old Testament, and they calculated that there were 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. That, uh, and the goal of their lives was to keep every single one of these down to the smallest detail. They were so concerned that they might accidentally break a commandment that they went to wild extremes. They would tithe not only from their income, they would even tithe from their spices. They would tithe from the food in their pantry. This would be like if you went to the store and you bought like a box of wheat thins. Then you came home and you're like, well, I should tithe. So you pour out your wheat thins on the counter. You count them up. There's 87 wheat thins. So you say, OK. Eight of them I separate for God. But then you say, wait, that's not 10%. So you get out your ruler, and you measure 7 tenths of one more wheat thin, right? And you break it exactly right so you can be sure to give God 8.7 wheat thins so that you can fulfill the law of God by giving a tenth. That's the kind of thing we're talking about that the Pharisees were doing to keep the law of God down to the smallest point. This same heart of devotion, by the way, exists even today in modern Jews. I read a story about something that happened a couple of years ago in an Orthodox neighborhood in Jerusalem. This apartment building caught fire. And well, you might say, OK, no big deal. You're going to call the fire department, right? Well, there's a problem. It was the Sabbath. And so these people weren't sure if it would be OK to make a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath because that would break an electrical current that was already in use. So, so they, they said, OK, well, we can't call the fire department because that would be breaking the Sabbath, maybe, right? In general, observant Jews, they, they consider it forbidden to use a telephone on the Sabbath. And so it, they couldn't just walk to the fire department or drive a car, because walking that far would constitute work. And driving a car would cause combustion in an engine. So that definitely wouldn't work. So they decided we need to go check with the rabbi to ask him if it's OK to make a phone call to the fire department. 
And in the, the 30 minutes it took, roughly, to get the rabbi to go to the rabbi and ask him the, the answer to the question, he said, yes, call the fire department. The fire had already spread to two more apartment buildings. It's that kind of scrupulous observance of the law that was at the, the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees, down to the minutest detail possible. They wanted to obey the law of God. But what does Jesus say? Check it out. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's why I wish I could have been there, to see their faces of these people when Jesus said that. Because every one of them, you know what they would have thought in that instant? They would have thought, well, then I'm definitely going to hell. I, it's no question. There is no way that I could ever be more righteous than a scribe or a Pharisee. If they're not good enough to go to heaven, then nobody is. And that's exactly the point that Jesus was trying to make. He is challenging the way that they think about righteousness and about old, the Old Testament and about the commands of God. And this is an extremely important point here in our day, just as it was in their day. You know, statistics show that more than half of Americans believe that they will go to heaven. And the reason, the most common answer for why they believe they will go to heaven is, you probably already know, because I'm a good person. So people have been polled on this, and they all say the same thing. Because I'm a good person. I watched a documentary a while back about human trafficking. They interviewed this guy who's a human trafficker. Like, that's his job, right? He's a human trafficker. He exploits other people and basically keeps them as slaves and abuses them. And you know what this man said? I consider myself a good person. Of course he does. Most people consider themselves a good person. The question is this, how good do you have to be to be considered good enough before God? How good do you have to be, in other words, to go to heaven? What Jesus was saying to these people, he said this, listen, who are the goodest people that you know of? Well, in that society, it was the scribes and Pharisees. No question. So I don't know who it would be in our society. Who, who are the people that people consider the goodest of the good, right? Is it the, the Pope, Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, Gandhi? I don't know. But to put it in modern terms, Jesus would say, imagine the, the goodest person you can imagine. And then you have to be better than that person because even they are not good enough to get into heaven. If you were to say that, many people would say, well, if those people aren't good enough to get into heaven, well, then who is? If those people aren't good enough, then, then probably nobody is, certainly not me. And that is exactly the conclusion that Jesus wanted these people to come to. That's exactly the point he's trying to make. And that is one of the fundamental aspects of understanding the Old Testament and the commandments of God. And it is a fund fundamental understanding of Christianity. No one, even the best, cannot be good enough in their religious observance or their good works towards others to be justified before God. What Jesus was telling his disciples and what Jesus is telling us is that we need a different kind of righteousness, a different kind of righteousness. There's no way that you could be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees in their kind of righteousness, which came from obeying God's rules. But you can be more righteous if you have a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that you don't earn, but a righteousness that is gifted to you by God and received by faith. 
Because there was a man named Jesus who said these things, who actually was more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus Christ himself, the one who perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law, the only truly righteous person who has ever lived. And the great message of Christianity is that you can have the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account, gifted to you by God, and you receive it by faith. In Jesus Christ, you can be actually more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. In Jesus Christ, you are more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because of your perfect track record? No, because of the righteousness of Jesus that has been accounted to you, gifted to you, put in your account, and that you receive by faith. See, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to shake up and challenge the common notions that people have of what it means to be a quote-unquote good person. Because when you get down to the root, when you get down to the heart of every matter, which Jesus is going to give us some examples here in the following verses, what you realize is that every good person has fallen short. No one's really good at the end of the day. We're all spiritually bankrupt before God. And that's why we're so incredibly thankful that Jesus offers us a different kind of righteousness, one is, that's not based on how good we are or our accomplishments, but one that's based on his righteousness gifted to us and received by faith. That is the only kind of righteousness that can get a person to heaven. And now Jesus is going to talk about the heart of various matters. From verses 21 to 48, Jesus is going to use six examples. We're not going to get through all of them in this study, but in these verses, verses 21 through 48 of chapter 5, Jesus gives six examples to show us that God is not only interested in our actions, but it also in our hearts and our motivations. And therefore, to live for God, to be a disciple of Jesus, doesn't only mean rigid outward conformity to his commands, it actually means more than that. It's actually an issue of the heart. And more than anything, God wants you to give him your heart. By the heart, of course, Jesus is talking about the core, the essence of your being. He doesn't merely desire outward obedience from us. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. So let's take a look at verses 20 and, or 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. This structure, by the way, is going to be repeated in each of these six sections. We're going to look at the first two of them in our study today. And that, that structure is this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now keep in mind that in Jesus' day, for the most part, people had not really read or studied the Bible for themselves. Many people in that day were illiterate, and the scriptures were written on these large scrolls that were very expensive. And they were especially expensive because they all had to be copied by hand. And so even if you could read, almost nobody owned a private copy of the scriptures that they could read and study for themselves at home. So uh, all 
almost all the people, they, they would have to go to synagogue, and there in the synagogue, they would hear the scriptures read to them, but it wouldn't be all of the scriptures. It would be a selected portion of the scriptures read aloud and then expounded upon by a rabbi. And that's why Jesus says here, not you have read for yourselves, but he says you have heard it said. Now, this is an interesting point because it's no small thing for us. We need to value it, I think, and we need to see this. That is no small thing that we live in a time where we have the ability to read the Bible for ourselves. We have stacks of Bibles all over the place, dozens of Bible translations. We have free apps on our phones where we can read the Bible at any time. If these people could have read the scriptures for themselves, things might have been different, right? The reason for their lack of knowledge and understanding about the heart of God, at least in part, was because they were dependent on the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. History shows us, by the way, what incredible blessings have come into the world through simple people being able to read the Bible for themselves and get to know the heart of God and the will of God through it. And also, history shows us what darkness there has been in this world when the church or culture has restricted people from reading the Bible. So Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now understand, when Jesus says that, he isn't speaking against the Old Testament. What he's speaking against is he's correcting false and superficial interpretations of the law, which were commonly taught in that day. And, and that's very, and, and by the way, these, these same interpretations are very applicable to our day as well. In regard to the Old Testament commandments, the scribes and the Pharisees, they made two fundamental errors, two fundamental errors. Sometimes they would restrict God's commandments in a way that God did not intend them to be restricted, like in the apartment fire I talked about just a minute ago. But in other times, they would extend God's commandments in ways that God did not intend for them to be extended. Now, both of these are examples of what we call legalism. Legalism essentially means trying to justify yourself by God, before God by following exacting observance of the letter of the law. For example, the Jews did this a lot with the Sabbath. It's something that they still do in Orthodox communities. For example, the commandment to honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy. On the seventh day, God rested. So on the seventh day, you should rest as well. So the question was, OK, but what constitutes labor? What constitutes labor? And so the Pharisees, they somewhat arbitrarily determined that a certain distance from their home, 2,000 cubits, to be precise, that was the distance that a person could travel before it could be called labor. In that way, they restricted the commandment, you know, beyond what God had said, and they created rules that God didn't create. But on the other hand, what they did is they, they created loopholes for themselves so that they could get around the restriction that they had created for themselves so they could still do whatever they wanted to do and still say, okay, I ticked the box and I technically kept the commandment. But really what they're doing is keeping the rules that they created arbitrarily, right? So one way of doing this was that they would take items from their houses and every 2,000 cubits, which is about 500 yards, they would set down an item from their house, right? Like here's a little lamp stand or here's a, here's a chair, right, from my house. And they would claim, well, technically, 
I'm not more than 2,000 cubits from my house because look at all these items. I just extended my house for a little bit. Or they would say, well, what exactly is a house anyway, right? Like technically a house is a place you live, right? Well, I live in Longmont. I also live in Boulder County. So that means that I don't leave the county. I'm technically not leaving my house, right? They would find these loopholes in order to technically keep the rules that they had created themselves. Jesus says, this is ridiculous. God doesn't just look at your technical obedience to his commandments. What God looks at is your heart. And God doesn't just want you to technically obey him. He wants you to give him all of your heart. So for anger, for example, the scribes and the Pharisees taught correctly that you shall not murder. That was God's commandment. But they also taught that anything short of murder was allowed. So as long as you don't kill somebody, you're good. So for example, you can't strike a man physically, but you can hate him in your heart as much as you want, right? You can do that all you want. But Jesus corrects this wrong understanding of God's commandment. He says, no, let's get to the heart of the commandment. It's not only the act of murder that matters to God. It's not only that. It's not only those who, who commit murder who are in danger of judgment, but it's those whose hearts are full of murderous intent. They are also subject to God's judgment. Jesus is saying that it is a mistake to think that obedience to God is only a matter of external performance. No, God isn't only concerned with what you do outwardly. God also cares about what's going on in your heart inwardly. Let's continue to the next section, verse 23 through verse 26. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." So the Pharisees had said, look, as long as you don't kill each other or strike each other, it's fine to hate people all you want and have bad blood between you and other people. And Jesus says, no way. That is not God's heart at all. God's heart is for reconciliation and forgiveness, that people would humble themselves and that no one would harbor bitterness against each other, especially not my disciples, Jesus would say. He says, my disciples are people who have a heart for God, and a heart for God is humble. A heart for God is the heart of a peacemaker. You know, as we read this, I would just encourage you, maybe there are people who come to your mind right now who you need to be reconciled with. Here you are in church, and that's great. It's wonderful. I love church. But understand, being a disciple of Jesus has practical implications for your relationships outside of church as well. And maybe this week, there's a phone call that you need to make. There's an email that you need to write. It's, it's time to stop trying to play the attorney and figure out who's right and who's wrong or who has more blame in the situation than the other person. And it's time to humble ourselves and say, you know what? I'm sorry. 
Let's start over. I forgive you in some cases, right? I hope you'll forgive me. Let's put the past behind us. Whatever happened, I'm sorry that it happened, and I'd like to move on and restore our relationship. Charles Spurgeon, the great British uh, preacher, he tells the story of how when he first became pastor of the church where he served for many years, there were several people who had grudges against each other in the church. And one of these people came to him one day and started kind of spewing all of his anger and bitterness about somebody else and what this person had done to them uh, years before. And Spurgeon said, don't you think it's time for you to just forgive this person and move on? And the man said, well, it may have been a long time ago, but time doesn't change the facts of what happened. And Spurgeon responded by saying, that's true. Time does not change facts, but it should change the child of God. You should have more love and more forgiveness in your heart now than you did back then. So, so there may be someone in your life today that you need to get right with, even if that means humbling yourself. Because here's why. We have a God who humbled himself in order to fix the broken relationship we had with him, which was not his fault. It was our fault, and yet he humbled himself, became one of us, became a servant to us in order to reconcile that relationship. That's the heart of the gospel. And we get to respond to the gospel by living it out in our own lives in practical ways like this and, and loving others as he has loved us. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Pharisees and the scribes rightly taught that adultery was wrong. But they applied that law only to the action of adultery. They did not apply it to the heart of adultery. Jesus says, God's commandment, doesn't apply only to the act. It also applies to the heart and to the mind as well. You know, we live in a time where lustful images are more abundant than perhaps they have ever been at any other time in history. You don't have to go very far to look for them. Many times they will find you, whether you want them or not. But what this is talking about is not just accidentally stumbling upon something or seeing something that you didn't want to and letting your eyes bounce off of it quickly. What this refers to is letting your mind rest upon something and dwell upon it in a lustful way. Martin Luther famously said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. That's that idea. This isn't something that applies only to men. I mean, women are also susceptible to letting their minds rest upon things which cause them to sin in their hearts. You may not be able to stop your eyes from seeing things or your mind from thinking about something, but by God's grace, you can stop your mind from dwelling upon it. Now, it's very important to clarify something here. Jesus is not saying that the act of adultery and adultery in the heart are the same things. Just like with anger, Jesus is not saying that uh, anger is the same thing as committing murder. Well, we would be profoundly morally confused to say that shouting at someone in anger is the same thing as killing an individual, or that fantasizing about doing something in your mind is the same thing as committing the act of adultery. Jesus' point is that God is concerned not only with our outward actions, but also so much with our 
inward motivations of our hearts. You know, people have, have been deceived at this point, and they've told themselves, for example, uh, people have said to themselves, well, I have already committed adultery in my heart through, through my thoughts and through my imagination. And since adultery in the heart is the same thing as actually committing the act of adultery, well then, I guess it's already done, so I might as well just go through it and, and do the act itself. That's terrible logic, and it's not what Jesus is saying. You, you wouldn't say, well, I'm just very angry at my neighbor, and Jesus says that that's a sin, so I guess I'll just get my axe out and just do him in, right? That would be terrible logic. Uh, you, you could put it this way. Some people ask, isn't, isn't all sin essentially the same? Well, let's answer that question by saying this. Uh, yes and no. Let's put it this way. Quantitatively, all sin is equal in the sense that a sin is a sin is a sin. You only, uh, how many sins does it take to make a sin? One, right? It takes one sin. So quantitatively, no matter how big or how small your sin is, one sin is one sin, no matter what that sin is. So quantitatively, before God, a sin is a sin is a sin. Now, on the other hand, qualitatively, not all sin is equal. Um, qualitatively, some things are more egregious and destructive than other things. So we'd be profoundly confused to think that Jesus was saying, if you sin in your heart, then you might as well go ahead and just do the sin physically as well, because as far as God is concerned, you already did. That's not what he's saying. His point is that sin is rooted in the heart, and the commandment against adultery doesn't only cover the act itself, but the intention of the heart. So to be a disciple of Jesus means more than just strict religious observance. To be a disciple of Jesus means to give your entire heart to God. Now let's finish by looking at these last two verses in verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Here's an example of hyperbole, which means using an extreme example in order to make a point. However, of course, from time to time, you'll read newspaper articles about people who took this literally rather than as hyperbole. Right? You read about a person who gouged out their eye or cut off their hand or even worse because they felt that they were following the commandment of the Bible. Maybe you say, well, Nick, don't you think that we should take the Bible literally? I mean, isn't this what the Bible says literally? Didn't Jesus literally say this? Well, here's, here's how I know that this wasn't meant to be taken literally because here's why. If you were to literally gouge out your eye or cut off your hand, that wouldn't actually solve the problem of what is causing you to sin. If you cut off, if you gouge out one eye, you've still got another eye. If you gouge out your other eye, well, then you still got hands. What are you going to do, right? Then you, you got no eyes and no hands, and you can still, the problem Jesus says here, you can still sin in your heart and your mind. So what are you going to do with those? I don't know, right? What Jesus is saying is that it's not the action itself that needs to be addressed only. It's the sinful desire which originates in the heart. The heart is the issue that needs to be dealt with. Don't miss the point, though, of what Jesus is saying. He's saying this. If there is a part of your life that is in bondage to sin, then you should be willing to take drastic action, even if it's painful to you, rather than just 
continue on with your whole life in the same way. He says, take radical action. Be severe in the way that you deal with sin and bondage in your life. Uh, don't let something in your life create a rift between you and God. Take it that seriously. A disciple of Jesus is a person who says, I'm willing to let some things in my life die in order for me to follow God. I'm willing to let some things in my life die in order to follow God with my whole heart. You know, sometimes both as a, as a missionary before and now as a pastor, I've had conversations with people who were considering the gospel and considering being a Christian. And I've had people ask me things like this. Well, if I became a Christian, can I still drink beer? Right? That's a question people ask sometimes. And on the one hand, there's part of me that wants to respond by saying, of course, yeah, sure. I mean, God's command is against drunkenness, but, but a beer, yeah, probably just, that's okay. You worry about following Jesus. But on the other hand, there's another part of me that says, wait a second. Are you telling me that you would give up the kingdom of God based on whether or not you can have a beer? Is that what is, what is determining how you decide in this matter? Eternal life with Jesus Christ, a new life here and now, but only if I can have a beer to go with it. Right? Look, look whether you can or can't is this entirely separate issue, but you should be willing to say, Jesus says, I would give up everything if necessary. I would give up everything for the sake of him who gave everything for me, for the sake of knowing God, for the sake of being found in Christ, to have his righteousness accounted to me by faith, that I might become truly right before God, that I might know the life that is truly life, that I might have life that never ends. The message of the gospel is that you and I are more sinful than we even realize, than we are even ready to admit Jesus has proved that to us here in this section, hasn't he? He's proved us, to us that things that we didn't even think were sin, actually there's a sinful uh, part to them. It's showing us that it's not only what we do outwardly, but it's the intentions and motivations of our heart that matter as well. So the message of the gospel is that you are more sinful than you even realize, and yet you are more loved by God than you ever dared to dream possible. And the promise of the gospel is that because of Jesus Christ, because of his life and death and resurrection, by faith you can have his righteousness credited to your account and God will come into your heart and give you a new heart because ultimately that's what you really need. You can cut off your hands, you can gouge out your eyes, but what you need is a new heart. The promise of the gospel is that if you will let him, God will come into your life and make you a new person at the very core of your being. He will remove the old heart of stone and replace it with a new heart, one that is soft and tender towards him. And he will write his law on your heart. He will give you a heart which longs to know him and obey him and live for him. That's the promise of the gospel. And that's the hope of a Christian. That although you can never be good enough to earn your way before God, you can never be good enough to earn your way before heaven, God loves you so much that he made a way for you in Jesus Christ. God himself became a man, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose from the dead in order to save you and give you eternal life. Isn't that good news? Today is the day to receive that new life, that new heart, through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. 
Lord, forgive us if there are areas of our lives where we have been trusting in ourselves and our own goodness and our righteousness, Lord, that we're better than others or that we're good enough. Lord, help us to see the fact that that's not true, that what we need is not just to fix something externally, not just to cut off a hand or gouge out an eye. What we need is a new heart. And Lord, we come to you today asking in faith that you would give us that new heart just as you promised you would. We want to receive that gift of your righteousness, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We want to receive that gift that you offer us by faith. Lord, help us to do that and help us to walk in this new life you give us in Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.